Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by SHP. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. Just before Christmas, SHP was delighted to announce the winners of the 2021 SHP Awards, some of which were voted by you, the SHP readers, and some picked by our assembled panel of expert judges. Over the next couple of episodes of the podcast, we're going to hear from some of those winners, learn about how they got into health and safety, and where they are in their career today. We'll also be touching on why their entry stood out from the crowd. First up, we're joined by SHP's most influential individual in health and safety, Dr Mavis Nye, a tireless campaigner for the dangers of asbestos exposure, as well as a qualified sleep practitioner, Lisa Artis, on why employees should focus more on the importance of a good night's sleep. Voted by you and following in the footsteps of the likes of John Green, Louise Taggart, Carl Simons and Hilda Palmer, Dr Mavis Nye was named as SHP's most influential individual for 2021 for her work as a campaigner supporting and raising awareness of the dangers of asbestos exposure and supporting those who are diagnosed with mesothelioma. Mavis has been described as a tour de force and an absolute dynamo for asbestos awareness. She lives with mesothelioma every day of her life, having been diagnosed a few years ago, and spends her life campaigning for asbestos awareness and removal. Let's start the episode with Mavis talking about how she was diagnosed with mesothelioma and some of the clinical trials she has undergone. My background really comes from mesothelioma. We went to Spain, and when I come back, I just couldn't breathe, and I went down to the doctors and had an x-ray, and on voting day, I walked up to vote, and when I came back, the doctor was on the phone to me saying, get into A&E now. We've got a bed for you because your x-ray is showing a huge mass. And that's the first time you know about it. Everybody that has mesothelioma can tell the same story. And so I went to A&E. They got me a bed and they drained off seven litres of fluid. And that's how it all started. That meant four years of chemo and then immunotherapy, lucky enough, came in. And there was three of us that went on the first trial. They just wanted to try it out. And sadly, the other two people died, but I sailed through. And they didn't know why. So since then, they've done my DNA. And it's now at the moment in Manchester Science Museum. <laughs> uh, I put it there because there's an exhibition for cancer. And then it's coming to London. They don't know what it is in my DNA that has helped me through. When was this? When did this officially, when did the diagnosis happen? And, and, and how did you come about to being diagnosed with mesothelioma? So that's 2009. So it's 13 years ago now. So I'm now the longest living person in the UK with mesothelioma that's had a hum- immunotherapy. So the diagnosis comes about by that look for the cells in the fluid. And yes, they were there. So then you do a biopsy. And then they puff in, of all things, they puff in talc that irritates and causes the lining of the lung to stick to the chest wall. And at the time, were you aware of the dangers of asbestos? And, and were you aware of mesothelioma? Or did this come as a complete surprise to you? Didn't know about mesothelioma. All I knew was that Ray worked in the Chatham Dockyard in 1957. He went in in 1953, but it, like, he started working about 1957. He went into the army. And when he came out, we got married and I started washing his clothes. All we knew was that his mates were dying with cancer and even a wife died of cancer that we knew. So we just knew that there was a cancer involved with asbestos. We didn't know the name of it. And so when the doctor said to me, you've got mesothelioma, 
we said, what's that? You know, so he said, it's asbestos. Immediately we knew. But also I've had other cases where I've worked with it. In Thorns Lighting, I blew out the machines. I worked there and blew out the machines on a Saturday to get all the glass out of the machines with an airline. There must have been asbestos there. And you're blowing that into the air around other people. I don't know if there's many cases in Thorns Lighting, but that's my story. And then you do DIY, you don't realise it's in, in that. We've knocked down walls. No, so we don't exactly know exactly where we got it, but we do know the first contamination was with Ray. How much of an impact does that have on, on your life? How much does it impact your day-to-day routine living with, with this disease? It's been hard going, really. It's all appointments, going to the hospital and waiting around in the waiting room, waiting for treatment, waiting for results of the scans. It's all down to waiting. We have to be very patient. <laughs> and being locked up for three years, we couldn't go out, you know, because Ray's got a cancer as well. He's got lymphoma. We had to stay indoors. You know, it's been really a bad time, as it has been for everybody. You must have been obviously extremely vulnerable. So it must have been quite scary for the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic. And how has that affected your your kind of mental health as well, not being able to be out and see people? Mental health that has suffered because I am petrified of getting it. I know that, all right, I've got a terminal illness that will probably kill me anyway, but I've thought it, you know, lasted 13 years. I don't want this virus to catch me and knock me out. I guess you've come to terms with mesothelioma and, and now, you know, yes. this, this is something else that's, that's an extra worry to you and, and it's, it will be, a, you know, a shock to you. Exactly. Yeah, it would. At the beginning, it sounded very bad. Now we've all had our injections and all that. But I still don't want to catch it because I'm still scared of it. Absolutely. Uh, that's put in this fear of going out. You know, we stay in all the time and we do go out now and again, but I'm washing my hands and I've got my mask on. And anyone sneezes near me, I'm so scared. (laughs) Not pleasant at all, I do feel for you. You obviously talked at the start there about how when you were first diagnosed, you you didn't know about mesothelioma. But how much of a a lack of awareness is there around the dangers of asbestos even now? And how can we go about raising more awareness about that and making people more aware of, of what can happen? There is a huge lack of knowledge. I run the groups on Facebook. And I've got a, an asbestos group as well as my mesothelioma groups. And in there, they do DIY, take a photo, it's this asbestos. I keep having to say, well, get it tested, but you should have had a survey first. And you cannot get that through to people that they must have surveys. You know, every household really should have a survey, I feel. Just how can we do more to, to, raise, to oh, make, yeah. raise more awareness around it? Education. Really, it's educating people all the time. Do you know, I think television fails terribly when it does DIY shows. Some actually do show asbestos and where it is, and we stop the job because of the asbestos, but a lot don't. And they're pulling out fireplaces, and that's one place where it all is. And and they're pulling down walls, and, and they're doing plumbing jobs. And never do they mention asbestos. Is it right in saying that it's it's only it only becomes dangerous once it's disturbed? So if it's in your house, if you don't know it's there, then it's it's not a major problem, or is that slightly? I'm beginning to think that isn't quite true, especially yeah. in schools. They say leave it alone; it's safe. I don't see that because it's been in there such a long time now, and I feel it's crumbling, you know. But it gets disturbed all the time, so why leave it there to be disturbed? 
Do we know how much asbestos is, is out there? How big of an issue is it? There is a figure of tons, yeah. It's in every old building, isn't it? Every old college, university, hospitals, everywhere. You mentioned there about residential properties and if you don't work on your own residential house and how you should be, you know, that's where there's a lack of awareness. But is there still a lack of awareness amongst professionals as well? So builders going in and, and contractors, or, or are they more aware of it? Are they doing the correct procedures? Obviously, you've got your good guys, but you've got your cowboys. And that cowboy does a job and then leaves it out in the countryside dumped. Oh, I love to get my hands on him. <laughs> no, <laughs> because they really shouldn't do that. They really should be fined very heavy. Because they're not looking after themselves, they've put it into their vans and they've gone home to their family. And so, you know, it's contamination all the time. And let's talk a little bit about the, the kind of the work that you're doing now and following your diagnosis. Was it kind of almost natural that you fell into researching it more and campaigning to raise awareness? Or was it a conscious decision that you wanted to go and, and actually be really active in, in kind of raising more awareness and helping other people? I had to look for trials. And so I had to do an awful lot of research. And then that sort of led me into researching asbestos. I was so angry with the government of the time. They knew about it and yet carried on and let us work with it. They took a risk that we, well, they thought we'd die anyway, so they wouldn't have to pay compensation. But that was fooling them, at least people like us are fooling. We are surviving. It wasn't a natural thing to go into it, but it just sort of come on me. And then I decided to start campaigning and I started by talking. People invited me to talk, and that's how I carried on. And then I went to the Contamination Expo and met them there. And I was in with all the guys then, so that was it. <laughs> I carried on. And then you set up the Mavis Nye Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that foundation and the work it does? Obviously, I have to get all the money in, as many donations as I can. And then that led me to Miso UK Nurse. We paid for Miso UK Nurse. but. We also then got involved with um, down at Basingstoke and Peritoneal. They've got a trial come through, the PIPAC trial, and we was able to go in with um, Miso UK and Hasag, and we bought the machines that gives chemo under pressure into the tummy area, and that's a trial that's going to start soon. Um, so that's the way I want to carry on, really, helping out where I can. And where are you on your on your timetable of, of trials now? What's the next sort of stage and, you know, what are you going through at the moment? At the moment, we're in talks as the foundation um, with the board and we're talking about where to put our money this year. So I just keep getting all the donations in and then we will dispose of it again in at the end of the year. Great, fantastic. It's the work that you've done that, that kind of led you to be shortlisted and, and nominated for SHP's most influential person for 2021. Can you just talk a little bit about how you felt when you were told you'd been shortlisted and when you subsequently won that award? I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I really did. I couldn't believe that something like that could happen. I just got the BEM, so I was feeling good on that. But by golly, did I feel good when yours came through. <laughs> how can you be the most influential I don't feel that I am, you know, but everyone says I am. So I just accept it. Yeah, we obviously had a wealth of nominations and votes and really, really good comments about some of the work that you've done and, and some of the, the impact that you're having, which is really fantastic. But how much do you think the recognition could do for the awareness of the work that you're doing? Oh, it's great. You know, I'm not all about mesothelioma. I'm half and half. Asbestos cause my mesothelioma. So I want to talk always about that. 
the lads send me photos of where it is. People think it's not in today's houses and today's society, but it is. Just because it's banned doesn't mean it went away. It didn't. And I want to keep pushing that fact. And I want to keep people safe for the future, especially the lads that work with it. I keep on about keeping safe with their masks and that don't grow your beard, you know, and all this. You have to keep nagging them about shaving, but they've got to keep safe. They're working with it. And, and how receptive are they when you're having those conversations? Do they take on board what you're saying or, or do they kind of brush it off or, you know, is it impacting them? I'm really surprised how the young do talk to me. I went to the contamination this year and there was two lovely lads came up to me and they said, we're apprentices and we're on training and we follow you all the time, you know, and that shocks me that the young are, but they don't seem as a silly old woman. <laughs> <laughs> Just finally, then, you talked about the importance of, of donations. How can people find out more about the work that you're doing and how do they contact you and, ha- and how can they, more importantly, donate to the foundation? My website is mavisnyefoundation.com and I'm on Facebook, so just find my name, Mavis Nye, on Facebook and LinkedIn and you can follow me through from there. On Twitter, I'm Grandma Mavis. <laughs> that, came, <laughs> that came about because I went on Twitter to watch my grandson. <laughs> <laughs> make sure he was safe on there and so I've never changed it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lovely and you've got you've got a good few followers on there as well so that's really grown as well so that's a really nice story I'm sure you'll agree that Mavis's story is truly inspiring she is an incredible individual and a very worthy winner of this award one voter said of Mavis without doubt Mavis is pioneering for change and awareness she is literally influencing the behavior of people to save lives you can read far more comments like that, learn about Mavis's story and find out how you can get support or help Mavis's campaign using the links in the episode description. In this next part of the show, we're going to focus on sleep, how important sleep is when it comes to people's health and well-being how it's often overlooked in the workplace, and learn some top tips on how you can make some small and quick changes to immediately improve your sleep. I was delighted to be joined by Lisa Artis, Deputy CEO at the Sleep Charity. Lisa was named SHP's Trailblazer and Workplace Wellbeing for 2021 for her work in raising awareness and the importance of sleep. Let's join the chat with Lisa explaining how she became a qualified sleep practitioner. It's quite diverse, really. So my initial background was in PR and marketing, That's where I spent a number of years and and kind of where my degree was. And after I'd had my second child, I ended up in a a marketing role at a not-for-profit organisation called the Sleep Council. So the Sleep Council had been set up years and years before that by the National Bed Federation. And they wanted basically a body that could talk about a good night's sleep and subtly push the importance of a good bed message. So it was very much a consumer awareness, marketing-led body. So as I said, I ended up in a marketing role there and eventually came to head it up. And then sort of during my time while I was heading up the sleep council, I was really interested in in sleep, just the passion for it anyway. So started exploring lots of sort of different ways to increase my own knowledge in sleep, did lots of sort of courses, including at the time the Children's Sleep Charities Sleep Practitioner course, which is where I met Vicky Dawson, who's the CEO of the sleep charity now. 
So Vicky and I started to work on various projects together, launching things around sort of teen sleep and, and various other bits and pieces. And we sort of realised we both had the sort of same ethos and the same values. And then we decided together between the two organisations to launch our Wake Up Call Sleep Manifesto and our Charter for Sleep Equality, which we launched in March 2020. And it was at this time that we were doing that, that the Children's Sleep Charity was going through a rebrand to the Sleep Charity and the Sleep Council was at the same time. And we decided, actually, why are we trying to do these two things separately? Why do we not just join forces, bring the two organisations together to become a much stronger independent voice? And that's kind of where it's kind of all led. So I've got a huge passion in kind of consumer awareness so I'm quite a big advocate for kind of pushing sleep on like the public health agenda because of my background in sort of PR and marketing obviously qualified as a children's sleep practitioner but the sleep council also did a lot around kind of adult sleep and corporate well-being which is what I brought to the sleep charity. Let's just focus a little bit on that corporate well-being so what is the sleep charity and what does some of the work it does in, in terms of helping businesses and individuals particularly in occupational health and employment? We are a small charity, but a national charity, award-winning, and we've got a huge mission to empower the nation to sleep better. So it's quite a big mission to go out there with. We are obviously strong believers that if we can share information about sleep education, it can really help people to manage their own sleep. And what we do is, because we're not medical professionals, we are very much looking at sort of sleep across the life course and how we can look at preventative sleep measures starting through children but also looking at adults looking at the workplace that's why we're sort of involved in kind of campaigning research projects individual sort of sleep support as well as delivering training and obviously as part of that now we obviously are working quite closely with corporate organizations we obviously have a specific training course that we can offer to employers now but not only that we do lots of like one-off commission pieces of work so we do lots of webinars to support various awareness weeks over the course of the year and just that I think while COVID has obviously been a really challenging difficult time it has really brought home the message about health and well-being so we are starting to see kind of that interest now in the workplace and sleep obviously is a huge part of that. So why is it so important when it comes to health and well-being that, that people have a good night's sleep? How does it affect them and how does a good night's sleep help you get through the working day? It has a huge impact on both sort of our physical and mental health and well-being. In terms of our kind of emotional and mental health, you know, it sort of protects it because we become more resilient, our mood is higher, you know, we're more motivated, we're more sort of energised and enthusiastic about kind of our day-to-day life and the work that we do. It obviously improves our physical health, so our weight is managed better when we sleep well, we're less prone to illness, and there's an enormous positive impact on our whole lifestyle as well, so our relationships are better when we sleep, you know, we're more sociable, things like that. And if we don't sleep well, we're actually more costly to society. In the workplace, we're quite costly, but also from a health perspective as well. Can you explain a little bit more about costly in the workplace, particularly working in, I'm thinking, hazardous environments and how can a lack of sleep impact your thought process and your reaction times and things like that? When we don't sleep well, our sort of concentration is obviously impaired. We've got poorer judgment. There's increased errors. There's a quote out there around, if you sleep deprived, if you wake up in the morning, it's like going to work having just necked down two beers. So actually, 
going to work sleep deprived is as bad as going to work like drunk as well. So there's lots of things like you say, you know, when you're driving, just the whole impaired judgment altogether, you know, this lack of memory as well. So you're more forgetful, just your whole problem solving and decision making is impaired too. You touched upon the work you're doing with Sleep for Children, but I guess it's also relevant to adults as well. And have you noticed over recent years the impact of more screen time having an impact on people's sleep? And, you know, as I'm thinking people lying in bed and scrolling through their phone, checking their emails at night or playing games, watching YouTube videos, that sort of stuff. How does that impact your sleep? Technology is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But at the same time, it has had a detrimental impact on our sleep. And You know, we hear all the time about the blue light from the devices has a huge impact on your sleep. And I think that's quite well known now. But it's not just that, it's the stimulation you get from the devices as well. What we found is that the biggest effect it has is is on what we call sleep latency, which is the time it takes for you to fall asleep. So what happens is people think they're going to bed at 10 o'clock because, you know, they've gone upstairs, they've brushed the teeth and got into bed. But actually what they do is they pick up their phone one last time And before you know it, 45 minutes, you know, an hour has passed and then they're trying to get to sleep. So then there's the extra, you know, 15, 20 minutes before you then fall asleep. But people still think their bedtime's 10 o'clock when realistically it's actually 11. So you've already lost an hour (laughs) without even realising it. And then obviously, you know, the blue light does have that impact, as does the stimulation from it as well. And it's some of your work over the last 12 months or so that saw you shortlisted and and subsequently named the winner of SHP's Trailblazer and Workplace Wellbeing for 2021. Can you just talk a little bit about how you felt when you were told the news? To even be shortlisted was a huge achievement, especially the calibre of people that was up against. You know, they were all absolutely amazing. And then to win, I would say professionally, this is probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Workplace wellbeing is something that I'm really, really passionate about as well. When I joined the charity, this was an area that I really, really wanted to focus on and really like make it my own in the charity. So to be recognised for this work is just fantastic. But it also really does kind of highlight sleep as part of the workplace now. And, you know, I'm really bringing it to the attention of employers. You talk about highlighting sleep there. You said after you won the award that that sleep's often overlooked in the workplace. Why do you think that is? And winning this award, how do you think that's going to help in terms of raising awareness for the importance of sleep, particularly uh, to employers and, and to employees? It is overlooked in the workplace, but it's also overlooked generally in life too is sleep. So, you know, when it comes to health and well-being, you know, we focus a lot of effort onto like diet and nutrition, focus a lot around exercising and moving more and also mental health. And all of these things are really, really important. But then we kind of neglect sleep, which actually feeds into all these other areas. So I think one of the reasons sleep is overlooked is because it's complicated. You know, it's quite a complicated message and quite often not a quick fix. So employers can do really good things about advocating exercising by maybe giving gym memberships out, you know, as part of sort of occupational health and and sort of HR sort of strategies. But what can you do to improve somebody's sleep really quickly? And also sleep is really individual. So you might absolutely function perfectly well on six and a half hours sleep and actually don't need any more do you know what I mean you can function absolutely brilliantly well and you feel absolutely fine whereas I might need like eight eight and a half hours to feel the same way so it's quite difficult to kind of put that message out there about what's the ideal as well which I think is why people often kind of push it to one side because it is complicated I also think there's no real pathways either for sleep so there's lots of information lots of advice around the other areas and not as much around sleep. 
But I do think it is changing. I do still think there needs to be a real sort of push on the public health agenda around sleep as well. And I know it's complicated, but I still think there's work that we can do there to make sleep part of the workplace even more. I also think sleep's one of those funny subjects which employees maybe don't always want to bring to the attention of their line managers as well, because I think there's still a bit of stigma around it in terms of they don't want to be perceived as lazy. You know, the immediate response sometimes can be, oh, did you stay up all night binge watching on Netflix? And it's like, no, but actually I did stay up watching TV, but that's because I can't actually go to sleep. So (laughs) I think it's a real tricky conversation as well, because a lot of reasons why people can't sleep are things that they can't really change quite quickly, do you know what I mean? So it's quite difficult. So I think that's why it's a subject that has been overlooked quite a lot. You likened it earlier to alcohol. So if if someone was turning up having had a couple of pints before work every day, you'd be able to spot that and you'd be able to almost regulate that and have conversations around that. But if someone was turning up sleep deprived every day, it's a lot more difficult to have those conversations. And like you say, it's a lot more difficult to put your finger on the reasons why. It might be of no fault of the person. Absolutely. You know, it could be that a mum who's returned back to work, who's got a child who's still up, you know, several times in the night. You know, it could be a woman who's going through the menopause. It could just be a young male adult who's just finding it really tricky to fall asleep at 10 o'clock because actually they're more of a night owl and their bedtime's more like 1am, but actually they still need to get up at 6am every morning. So they're, they're chronically sleep deprived. So there are lots and lots of different reasons. It's quite hard to kind of pinpoint you know, how to help somebody with that. And one of the things you've done with uh, the charities, you've recruited some people to your board that, that our readers will know well, such as uh, Karen McDonald from Rosper and Simon Blake from Mental Health First Aid. What kind of insight do, do they bring and how has that helped with your messaging? When we expanded, obviously, from the Children's Sleep Charity, the Sleep Charity, one of the things that we, you know, first off we wanted to do was have this voluntary expert advisory board, you know, a group of people who could sort of help shape the future of sleep support nationally and play a, a vital role in that providing that advice and that challenge and scrutiny on sort of key issues and key programs that we were doing and we don't profess to have the answers to all areas because we can talk the sleep but we can't always talk the menopause bit you know we know that sleep has an impact when people are going through the menopause so it was really important for us to have like a menopause expert on there Karen obviously McDonald from Rosper is a huge help in terms of like talking around driver fatigue because that is a massive issue at the moment you know and something that we're seeing increase almost year on year especially because there's a lot of people now doing shift work as well you know that seems to grow year on year as well so Karen's amazing in terms of giving us that support around that area because again you know we just need that expertise from different sectors as well and same with Simon from Mental Health First Aid England you know we know there's an absolutely close relationship between sleep and mental health you know the two quite often go hand in hand so again we need to ensure that the programs that we're delivering really take that into consideration as well and bless Simon who sits on our advisory board also participated in the workplace sleep ambassador training as well so it was really important for him to kind of understand where we were coming from with that training because it does support the mental health first aid England training as well so that's the kind of model we were kind of sort of working on us with Simon's model because what he's done there is amazing but yeah they're fantastic in terms of just kind of feeding in with that insight and, and helping to spread the message further because I'm a big believer in that 
there's no point reinventing the wheel and it's much better to work with partners to kind of spread those messages. You know, we at the charity can't be an expert on driver fatigue, menopause, mental health and sleep. But by working with all these different partners, we can ensure that these messages are um, going out to a much wider audience, which, you know, ultimately means people have access to better sleep support. And it helps, I guess, provide some extra gravitas behind what you're trying to say as well. I mean, employers are in a perfect position to, for instance, delivery drivers, they're up against the clock quite often. They've got to make a certain amount of deliveries a day. And if an employer is putting pressure on that, those individuals to work longer than they perhaps should do or drive further than they perhaps should do, having someone like Rosper on board, I guess, yeah. is going to help with your messaging on that front. Absolutely, yeah. And same with things like shift work as well. And we often find we've worked with like a number of police forces where NHS trust you know, nurses, doctors, police officers are not getting the rest breaks in order to be able to kind of rejuvenate themselves. You know, they're going for long periods without food and drink. All these things play a huge factor in your overall health and well-being, but also then your sleep as well. There's that old adage, isn't there, that you need to look after yourself before you can help others. And that's perfectly, you know, in those sorts of professions, that's a, that's a perfect analogy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You touched on it earlier. Can you talk a little bit about the chart of sleep inequality and, and what that is? So as part of our manifesto launch back in March 2020, we also launched our Charter for Sleep Equality. And this was really calling on individuals, businesses, organisations who, I wouldn't say necessarily concerned about employee well-being, but really like wanted to sort of think about it in the workplace and wanted to help promote good sleep amongst kind of either employees or students or even a wider community. And we were asking them to pledge their support to sign up to it. It wasn't going to be like we would force feed them loads of information and and check up on them every three months to see if they were doing things. But it was more about giving them that badge to say we are interested in our employees' well-being. We do take it seriously. And, you know, we've pledged this support to the charter. And when we launched it, we had sort of like 100 sort of businesses sign up. And then obviously we went into COVID and the charter has kind of stalled a little bit. But my plans are now off the back of this award win and the success we've had with the Workplace Sleep Ambassadors. I really want to put some more life back into this. And there's a real nice link with obviously the Workplace Sleep Ambassador course where we can join the two things up together because it's a great thing. And people don't always necessarily have to do all the training, but it's just the fact that they are pledging their support to sort of look after their employees health and well-being. Absolutely. And we'll come on to in a minute about you know, providing some tips on how people can, can get involved in that. But first of all, I'd like to get your top three tips. If you're struggling to sleep or if you're not getting a regular good night's sleep, what are your top tips for, for yeah. how to get a good night's sleep? I think there's three things that everybody could do, which doesn't take too much hard work. And they're the first sort of three things that I always say to people that are really kind of easy to look at. And I call them the three R's. So it's regular hours. So it's looking at really strengthen your sort of body's internal body clock. So that's your circadian rhythm, going to bed and sort of getting up at the same time all the time, really kind of programs the mind and the body to sleep better. We all thrive on routine, which is why kids often do have a bedtime routine. And then as we get older, we kind of let that go and we kind of do whatever we want to do sometimes that's not always easy you know with shift work you know people can't always do that so it's you know it's obviously finding what works for you but where you can if you can try to sort of consistently stay within an hour of that same bedtime and and same with the wake up time people naturally find that even then when it comes to a weekend if they've been used to kind of going to bed at 10 11 p.m and waking up at I don't know 6 7 a.m naturally they won't wake much later than 7 a.m I find these days that comes to 7 30 and I'm wide awake because I'm so used to kind of getting up between half six and half seven anyway that that's what my body's used to now so that's really key in kind of just keeping that body clock on track 
The next R is routine. So it's just factoring in that wind down routine. Again, it's something we do with kids. You know, they always have a bedtime routine. And as we get older, we just lose it. And it's about factoring in. Ideally, it'd be an hour, but I think even 30 minutes can really help people to just kind of de-stress, forget about the day, forget about work. It's about switching off those phones at that point. So it's about setting that boundary, going, this is the time that I am now going to switch it off and do something that you enjoy. So I won't be prescriptive and say, you must have the bath or you must read the book. Find something that you enjoy and then do it. So if you do like reading, read. But if you absolutely detest reading, don't do it slightly to make you more anxious. Same with having a bath. I hate a bath. It makes me really hot and it makes me really sweaty and I just find it really flustering. But if you love a bath and it makes you feel quite relaxed and do it. So it's just finding what works for you and just factoring in that time before bed. We've got to let go of all those stresses, all those worries. So we're in the right frame of mind for sleep. And then the last R is a restful environment. First thing everyone could do straight away is have a look at their bedroom and go, is it right for sleep? Is it right for my sleep? Ideally, it should be kind of cool. So we're like 16 to 18 degrees. Most people like it quiet because most people find noise quite infuriating when they're trying to sleep. It needs to be dark because light increases your melatonin production, which stops you feeling sleepy. Ideally, it should be like clutter free because even though you sleep with your eyes closed, you don't want the last thing for you to see before you go to bed is just mess everywhere. And you should just look at your bed as well. So make sure you've got a good bed, you've got good pillows, you've got nice bedding. And these are things that people can immediately start doing. You know, it's not a big overhaul of your lifestyle, but they're just some little things that some people could put into place straight away. And they might find they have a huge sort of impact on their sleep because they didn't even realise that they were sleeping with a lot of light coming in through the window or there is a lot of noise outside or actually they've got the bedroom too warm. A lot of people think they need to have the bedroom quite warm for sleep, but actually it needs to be slightly cool, not cold, but slightly cool. Excellent. Some really useful advice there. Hopefully some things that people, as you say, people can start to implement straight away. So just finally then, how do people find out more about the sleep charity? I know you've got plenty of downloadable resources on your site and how can they contact you if they're interested in signing up, for instance, to the, for the Charter for Sleeping Policy? Our website, which is thesleepcharity.org.uk, is a really comprehensive resource, like you said, packed with loads of downloadable sort of advice sheets and things like that. We also have a National Sleep Helpline, which runs Sunday to Thursday, 7pm till 9pm. And the number for that is 03303. 530541. So anyone who's got a sleep issue can phone that and speak to one of our trained sleep advisors. And if you're interested in the Charter for Sleep Equality or the training or just for any other kind of inquiry, you can just contact us on our email address, which is info at thesleepcharity.org.uk. I have left the links to all of the resources and information mentioned by Lisa in the episode description. Should you want to hear more from the Sleep Charity, Mike Oliver, Workplace Sleep Ambassador Program Manager at the Sleep Charity, We'll be speaking about safety and sleep, including mental health, driver fatigue and shift work at Safety and Health Expo on Thursday the 19th of May 2022, London's XL. You can register for your free ticket by using the link in the episode description. I'd like to thank Mavis Nye and Lisa Artis for their time in putting this episode together and to you for joining us. Entries and nominations for the 2022 SHP Awards will open later this year. Keep an eye out on SHP for further details. If you're new to the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check out our previous episodes. Last time out, we heard from an events venue and an events business, learning about how trade shows and exhibitions and other face-to-face events can go ahead safely in a post-pandemic world. 
You can find the link to the podcast hub where all of the episodes are hosted in the episode description. If you like what you hear, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We are also available on your smart speaker. Simply ask to play the Safety and Health podcast. We'd be really grateful if you could rate and comment on your chosen platform as that will help us to get the show out to a wider audience. As always, please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news, where you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode.